Okay. All right. So um, thanks, guys, for showing up. Um, this is the chance. Thank you, Will, for giving me the chance to uh, um, introduce this topic. This is an area that I, tech and ethics is an area that I work in for my day job uh, as a, an academic at UTS, um, tech ethics and education specifically. Doing tech ethics and spirituality is a, is a, new, a new venture for me and we'll see how that goes. Um, what I wanted to do was share just a few a few things that are going on in my universe and um, drop them into to see what you make of them and see whether that helps us think about um, this this strange intersection between tech ethics and uh, and spirituality um, uh, here we have the three the holy trinity um, and i just wondered whether we could start off just by sort of saying what what kinds of things spring to mind for you when we go tech and ethics just off the top of your head what kinds of things start jumping to mind facebook is a negative facebook's a negative yeah data collection just generally seems to be a big part of it these days yeah yeah the fact that so many of our products is sort of that, you know, if it's free, you're probably the product. Any any of the free stuff that we get usually has a hidden benefit to the other side that we don't necessarily think about. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't really figure that out for a while, did we? Mm. Just like, wow, amazing, cool software for free. Um, we don't What's this we're it. using? <laughs> what are we talking over here? <laughs> Yeah, we're talking on Zoom here. Uh, presumably, we're paying for Zoom. Mm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> since we don't get chucked out after 40 minutes. But yeah. Um, I also just think about it, it's sci-fi. I think about um, there's sort of the dystopian narrative of what appears to be utopian, the, the progress of technology ending up being, you know, robots taking over the world or all of those sort of scenarios. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's, uh, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger going back in time or uh, any other sort of, uh, you know, the Matrix. There's a lot of, a lot of dystopian sci-fi out there about intelligent machines. I also think about like factories that manufacture technology and the ethics around worker conditions and uh environmental effects yeah yeah waste that sort of stuff yeah and in fact there's um there's an amazing um resource on <clears throat> what it actually takes to produce a phone or uh an uh you know an amazon alexa going all the way back to the extraction of minerals out of the ground and the slave labor used for that all the way through to production pretty interesting stuff uh in fact i meant to uh Drop that in. I might add that to the slides afterwards. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, what about technology and spirituality? Is that is that something that that you ever think about? Um, 
just being able to have the Bible on my phone. Right. Yep. Got access to podcasts and things like that. Yeah. Being able to have discussions over the internet about technology, ethics, and spirituality. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that, yeah, the sort of modern contemporary way of doing church has become increasingly technological, whether it's from just having stuff on screens um, in a, in a gathering to obviously now churches kind of adapting to doing live streaming of services and things like that. Right. Right. So just using technology to connect people the way we do in, Mm. you know, outside of church, but now we can do it with church like we're doing right now. Yep. Christian content, spiritual content. Um, You know, we can, we can put a lot of stuff on the screen. Let's put the Bible up. Let's put, you know, let's have a podcast with interviewing somebody interesting about their faith. So, yep. Okay. And I don't know whether it really makes any difference as to whether you think there's something at the middle there or, or whether, whether in fact everything that's ethical is also got a spiritual dimension or whether everything that's spiritual has also got an ethical dimension or whether, you know, there really is, there really is stuff out here that's nothing to do with ethics. Uh, we don't need to get into too philosophical the discussion about whether there's stuff up here which has got nothing to do with spirituality or whether, you know, in fact, this is the wrong diagram. I did have a different version of this diagram at one point. You know, I thought maybe spirituality sort of goes around the whole thing. What we could have a discussion about maybe later on after we've seen some examples is whether technology can sit out here independent of ethics or spirituality. Mm. So in fact, my next question is exactly about this interesting space up here. Is technology neutral? How do you think about it? Is technology intrinsically a good thing, a gift from God, maybe? Or is it intrinsically a bad thing because it just always, always has negative effects? Or is it just neutral and it's totally up to us what we're going to do with it? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I'd say it's neutral. I'd say it's it's more around how it's used than the actual technology itself. Right. I, I would have definitely said that um, <clears throat> for most of my life, I reckon. But as there has been this sort of increasing realization of how subtle, um, you know, the way that technology does uh, rewire our brains or our neural pathways, if we're not consciously aware of it doing that, then we might be using it in a way that we think is relatively neutral, but it still is reshaping us. Yeah. Um, I mean, more like the technology itself, like a computer is neutral, but it's just, you know, how you use it can be good or bad. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would agree with that. I'm just saying, like, I wonder if, like, any time the computer meets a human, then the neutrality kind of disappears in a way. And it could go yeah. in any direction, but, like, yeah. yeah. I would say that's, that's pretty yeah. accurate. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's a very interesting question. I'm going to drop in a few ideas that, that might provoke you to think, differently or it might reinforce your view um we're going to start well when we think about technology of course that's a huge thing um we, th- we think a lot about 
information technology um when we talk about technology you know what we have on our screens on our phones and, and so forth um here are two examples of technology now the one on the right is all the social media stuff the one on the left is a missile that in fact is an anti-missile missile that's a surface-to-air missile interceptor so it can only be used for defense in fact this is part of israel's um iron dome all right so they use this to intercept all those missiles coming in from the palestinians mm. so it's an interesting if we, if we take a missile an anti-missile missile which is purely defensive we might say oh well that's better than an attack missile it, you know, it can only do one thing, which is intercept other missiles. So, you know, we might think that's 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 a good thing to have. You know, you can't you can't go to war with 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 these things, um, but you can defend yourself. Um, on the other hand, we know that Israel are using this, and we we might have all sorts of views about what Israel is doing and the fact that they obviously don't have just this kind of missile; they have other kinds too. All right. And if we look over on the right hand side, you know, we're messaging. Okay. Uh, we do this all the time in WhatsApp uh, within the group. Um, and we, well, we're going to have a think about what the, what the sort of ethics and spirituality is around something like WhatsApp. In fact, we're going to take Facebook as an example. Um, I'm going to start though, introduce a little, a very low tech example. It's, it's a bridge going over a highway on Long Island in New York, off, off New York. Long Island, they created lots of uh, beautiful parklands and stuff there. And the, the architect put uh, bridges over um, for people to walk over, drive over, and so forth. But these were very controversial bridges because these bridges were intentionally designed to be too low for buses to get under and guess which kinds of people would be taking the bus to get onto Long Island. It was the, the poor people and the blacks. So there's a very famous piece of work by Langdon Winner. He, he wrote a chapter called do artifacts have politics. And this was one of his examples. And um, uh, you can read about it later, but essentially, they wanted to keep the undesirables away from Jones Beach because the undesirables were going to misbehave and they were black. And it turns out the urban planner had rather objectionable views about Negroes back then. And so it's a nice example of, you know, a piece of technology, but it's got certain properties designed into it that constrain certain people much more than others. And there's no way we could say that that bridge was neutral in, in that sense. But neutrality or, or, or being biased, of course, is in the eye of the beholder. For the white people, they wouldn't even see it. They just drive under and go and enjoy their day. Right. But the blacks could not take these roads. They had to take a very circuitous route. It was it just put them off. You know, so it's very interesting example. So that's built infrastructure. And these days, we're actually used to talking about the politics of our built infrastructure quite a lot, right? You know, I mean, these days, we're highly sensitive to whether an entrance has got steps or an on ramp for disabled people, right? 
we talk a lot about the, the, you know, the, the oppressive effects of high-rise estates, right? Because you could say bricks and mortar are neutral, but as soon as you actually start creating things that, as you said, well, people are going to interact with, they no longer can be said to be neutral. They have what are called affordances. They make certain things possible and they make other things impossible or very hard to do. Right. So, you know, just to take a trivial example, a door handle has certain affordances, which mean you can push the door or pull the door. You can't pull a door without a handle on it. You know, a metal plate on a door in, invites pushing. Um, but if you're a very creative person, you might think that that handle could also be used to tie a rubber band to it so that you could play a game. So affordances enable certain things, but they're often in the eye of the beholder as well. Okay, so that's built infrastructure and built infrastructure around us constrains us, right? The road system uh, constrains what we can do. We can go from A to B, but if there's no road, it's going to take us longer. It's going to be harder work. It's going to be slower. Right? And so a lot of thinking is going on around digital infrastructure because that obviously affects how we interact with the world so much these days, how we perceive the world, how we actually interact with the world, you know, make a bank transaction, buy something, consume music, consume news, interact with each other. It's going through this digital infrastructure now. And so the question is, what are the ethical properties of that? How does that open up or close down our minds, the way we think, the way we interact with each other, the way we think about the world? So what's going on now is people are kind of excavating the digital infrastructure and showing how values are built into that infrastructure all the way down. And for me, you know, this is quite an exciting idea. Um, it's kind of like digging into the, the DNA of, of the digital world. So one thing is that all technology is powered by data. Right, we all know that. And there's this brilliant statement, raw data is an oxymoron by uh, a fantastic uh, thinker called Jeff Bowker in the States. And he wrote, raw data is both an oxymoron and a bad idea. To the contrary, data should be cooked with care. So we hear people talk about raw data all the time, right? And, and, and the idea is that this is just sort of flowing au naturel, untouched by human hands. And Bowker is arguing, no way. All data gets to us cooked. Somebody has made decisions all the way back to the beginning as to what data to show us, what that, you know, how, how what's the resolution of the data, you know, um, how good is the data source. Um, and then, of course, we don't see data except by visuals. So somebody's had to design some visuals. Right. And those visuals can highlight certain information and hide other information. And it assumes that you know how to read a chart or a graph or make sense of numbers. So there's values built in all the way. It's just it's like a set of filters on the world. So this this notion that raw data speaks for itself, you know, let the data speak for itself. And we we many of us would reply, data does not speak for itself. It has to be given a voice. And that voice is not some neutral voice. 
you know, I think we're all aware from all the stuff going on around, you know, when we talk about the Bible, right? There is no neutral interpretation of the Bible anymore. You can't just say, here, it says it in black and white, right? There is no such thing as black and white and the objective truth of what this thing means. It's it's contested increasingly, right? So data doesn't speak for itself any more than text speaks for itself. So that's that's one of the sort of powerful ideas that's, that's going on around. So if all technology is powered by data, but some very special people are deciding what data is available, those people are immensely powerful. And where there's power, there's ethics. And arguably where there's power, we're starting to talk about spirituality of some sort. Hmm. We're talking about justice and injustice. Who gets to see the data? Who gets to decide what the data will be? Who gets to validate the data? Typically, powerful, middle-class or more, and often white 30-somethings in Silicon Valley, you know, who are busy inventing the next cool app. Okay, so all technology needs data. Just one of the dangers of inviting an academic to do anything is it turns into a lecture. So I want you to stop me <laughs> anytime <laughs> this isn't making sense, all right? Okay, here's my fabulous book number two. Okay, sorting things out, classification and its consequences. There's Jeff Barker again and uh, his sadly now deceased uh, partner, Susan Lee Starr. Amazing, amazing book. It's not just about technology, though. It's just about classifying. Like our whole world is made up of classifying things, right, in, in, in every field. And that also underpins technology because it needs categories to put things in. And, and, and one of the, the key statements from this is the, you know, the only good classification is a living classification. So, you know, simple example, we used to talk about male and female. Now that binary classification is much more contested and much more fluid, right, as we know. Uh, and they talk about, they look at all sorts of different classification schemes. And basically it's another power play who gets to do the categorizing? Who gets to decide what the categories are on the form that you have to fill out? And we've all dealt with stupid forms with categories that don't seem to fit reality, right? Created to make bureaucracy easier because they just want you to, to fit yourself into these shoe boxes, right? And of course, technology is just that on steroids because you've got to have categories to allow the technology to do things. So more power play here and more, you know, whose worldview gets to decide the categories. And a final one just for you. Amazing book, Weapons of Math Destruction um, by Cathy O'Neill. Um, she used to be a, a sort of uh, a financial wizard, tech modeling wizard in, on Wall Street. And then she realized what was going on with big data and... Um, Big data, which you may have heard of, is just a, a huge amount of data, and now that's powering artificial intelligence. It all runs on models of the world. And Kathy says very succinctly, models are opinions embedded in maths. Hmm. Okay, so you may not understand the maths, but basically someone's made a whole bunch of assumptions. Hmm. And assumptions are, as we know, based on all sorts of, well, biases, intuitions, hunches, things that make obvious sense to you, but which might not to somebody else. So a very, very articulate 
accessible book if you're interested in that sort of stuff. Hmm. Okay, so what I'm trying to say here is that you know data, classification schemes, models, there's just a, so many values built into those. And that's what's powering all this digital infrastructure around us now. And it and and the and the the sort of uh, uh, the nasty thing about infrastructure is that it sort of sinks into the background and becomes invisible, right? It's like we don't think about the wires or the plumbing until something goes wrong. We just press a switch and you know magic happens and the light comes on or a computer comes on. We only think about infrastructure when things go wrong. So you know, the digital infrastructure is now this mask or this lens or this filter across our eyes in the way that we see the world and engage with the world. And people are making those decisions about what they think it means, you know, so suddenly to make friends with someone is, is, is a Facebook sort of concept. And, and to respond to somebody's news is to like or, or, or smiley face it. You know, they, they sort of appropriated the concept of having a relationship and boiled it down to a number of very, very small categories mm. for expressing emotion, you know. Uh, okay, so that was sort of just a few a few things I wanted to put in there. I don't know, I'll pause there. Is, is, that, is that sparking any sort of thoughts with you um, about ethics or maybe even spirituality? Mm. Yeah, one of the things that's making me think is um, when I think about spirituality, I think about formation. I think about a journey of who we are becoming and um, everybody's on some sort of journey of formation, whether or not they consider themselves spiritual. But I'm just struck by like how all of those unseen assumptions, the same as our kind of culture is all the stuff that we don't necessarily realize that we're swimming around in all of those design decisions are forming forming us and that's where i see a huge overlap between are we being formed into ethical beings and are we being you know other sort of design decisions being made with that kind of lens what kind of people will will this create um this kind of invisible mass of unseen yeah stuff so that's where my mind is going Okay. Yeah. And again, yeah, I just thought about, um, I guess, like a statement there models are opinions embedded in mathematics. Like, um, yeah. I just never really thought about, uh, I guess, that, that particular statement. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes me think of all the COVID modeling they did. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What assumptions yeah. are in that? Or yeah, all those all those models coming out of the you know the institute of this or the institute of that, uh, they're all based on a bunch of assumptions, right? Now, obviously, mm. these are not random assumptions. These are assumptions based on the best science available, but they're still assumptions, um, and and they can be questioned. Um, Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because math mathematics feels sort of unquestionable. That's why that statement is is uh, it's it's provocative in a good way because it sort of makes you think all this stuff that seems um, concrete 
um, seems black and white maths and science and technology is actually as um, yeah yeah that's just like either right or wrong but in this situation it can be used in a very gray way yes everything's gray <laughs> yep mm. yep so you know maths is rigorous you know technology does what it's told well actually we can come back to that but you know um it, it all feels quite sort of technical and engineering-y but it's just absolutely riven through with value judgments that's the message okay let's look at what happens when it starts to go a bit wrong some of these may be familiar examples some of them may not be okay so you, you may have heard about predictive modeling or something called machine learning um basically this is what's this is the revolution where the machine crunches huge amounts of data and tries to figure out which behaviors that humans are engaging in or which demographic aspects of humans are going to help them classify you. It's all about classifying you, right? Are you likely to buy this thing? Are you, does it look like you might leave and switch to a different provider? You know, um, whereabouts are you sort of on, on the spectrum of what we could sell you typically, because it's all about selling stuff. Um, so one example was we want to be able to spot if you're pregnant. And I don't know whether you've come across this story, but in the States, um, Target, the store, um, had an algorithm that was targeting um, sales vouchers, you know, special offers to expectant mums. And um, they sent a load of uh, vouchers through to a teenage girl. Um, and it landed on the doorstep. And her dad was absolutely furious that Target was targeting his daughter with, you know, stuff to do with pregnancy. Marched into the store, tore a strip off the manager who, you know, of course, had no clue what was going on with their algorithms and automated marketing. Apologized profusely, said they'd look into it. Dad went home, discovers that his teenage daughter is pregnant hadn't gotten around to quite having that conversation yet so target had already figured out that she was pregnant hmm. because her buying habits had changed statistically she was behaving like most other expectant mums in their buying habits and you know she'd suddenly switched to buying non-perfumed uh, creams you know, she wasn't out buying the obvious things like, you know, nappies and a cot and a stroller or anything like that. It was just subtle changes that pregnant women make in their buying habits that were picked up by the algorithm. Right. So you could say, well, you can't blame the algorithm. It did its job. Right. And uh, it sent it sent the quotes right sales vouchers to the right consumer. But clearly there are all sorts of ethical knock-on effects of behaving like that uh, with your with your customers. So that, that was a pause for thought. Algorithmic bias is something else that's being talked about a lot. And this is just, this is even where we are unconsciously building 
bias into algorithms, not because somebody is evil and is biased against blacks or women or whatever it might be, but they just aren't aware of what they're doing. And a bunch of interesting sites there. AGL is the Algorithmic Justice League, by the way, taking great <laughs> inspiration from superheroes or something. Um, great sites to go and have a browse around if you want to know more about it. So a few examples of algorithmic bias just to sort of make you sit up and think. Again, what we're doing here is we're sort of excavating how does this digital infrastructure warp our view of the world without us even realizing it. You Google Jerusalem, you'll see a page like this on Google. Okay. First of all, you would just you would see this. Often they pull in Wikipedia because they like Wikipedia. Uh, and as you know, if we scrolled down, we'd see more stuff. Then there's this knowledge panel, which has started appearing in the last few years because they have a structured knowledge re representation of entities in the world. You know, it, they know it's a city. They know when it was founded. They know its elevation. They know how old it was. And they pulled in the, the opening sentence from Wikipedia. Lovely. Structured knowledge about this place or this person. Bang. It's the capital of Israel. That is a highly contested status. Okay. And if you actually go read the Wikipedia article, you'll read about why different groups think Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel. Right. But for some reason, their knowledge representation has decided it is. It just made this binary decision. Okay. And so, you know, the, the, there's an ethical thing going on here that someone's made a decision about this um, and uh, it's just being purely algorithmic. Another famous story, Google Photos started tagging things, including black people as gorillas. Okay, why? Not because someone at Google was racist consciously, but simply because the image processing algorithms, the machine learning algorithms had only been trained mainly on white faces, plus gorillas. Okay, and that caused a furore and they fixed it eventually. Another example, Nikon's smart photo processing was picking out Asian faces and saying looks like someone's blinking, just because their eyes were too narrow. Right. So this is just examples of how in inadvertently when you train machine learning on a data set that's basically got, you know, too many white faces in it, you get these kinds of errors coming through. Um, all of Kodak's color system in the early days was optimized for white photos, photos of white people. The colors were terrible for darker skins. Again, because who were the people in the Kodak labs designing the film? The film was optimized. The film had politics, if you will, just like that bridge. If you showed this picture of a, a white hand holding a monocular, not binoculars, but a monocular, then, you know, Google's algorithm would classify that as a hand and a monocular. Not if it's a black hand. Wow. Wow. Okay. Again. Nobody made that decision. The algorithm just inferred that that shape in a black hand is typically going to be a gun. Okay, pretty interesting stuff. Two faces, 
these guys are both facing the opportunity for parole. It goes to court. And the courts are starting to use an automated system to assist the judge in making the decision as to whether either of these guys is going to reoffend. And quite a systematic investigation showed that the software was over predicting that the blacks would reoffend compared to the whites. So again, it's been trained on statistically on data from the past, right? Of course, where else is data going to come from? And the past has had systematic biases in it, right? Injustices. And so we train the machine on a warped version of the world, and lo and behold, it reproduces it. It's like a child. The child will reproduce whatever worldview you show it. If it grows up in a right-wing fascist family, child's likely to grow up with a right-wing fascist worldview. Same thing with algorithms. So we come back to technology and ethics and spirituality. And uh, hopefully these examples are just giving you a few instances of how our worldview can be warped, even just doing a Google search, right? There are so many examples. Women doing a Google search on jobs get shown different jobs to men, lower paid jobs. Blacks doing a search on jobs get shown different jobs to white, right? You will not see the same thing as me when you do a Google search. Um, so it's just there in the infrastructure. It's invisible. You wouldn't know it unless there were people busy working on this and trying to show that the infrastructure is anything but neutral. It's not a clear glass. It's very much through a dark glass. Um, the question is, how, how do we become aware of that? Okay. Let's take Facebook. We referred to that earlier. <clears throat> if we were to take Facebook, what ethical or spiritual questions might we ask about it? Just wondered if we could, you know, supposing we were going to ha ask hard probing questions, what are the different ethical or spiritual dimensions around Facebook? What kind of aspects do you think there are? So I'll just pick out one easy one, right? What kind of content are you bumping into on Facebook? You know, there could be all sorts of offensive stuff, could be amazing stuff that makes you feel like a better person, makes you want to go out and help your neighbor, or mm. makes you want to go out and um, hammer your neighbor. Mm. Uh, okay, so there's, there's the content. Well, there's the, I think the question of um, whether or not it's ethical, that is sort of, you know, is it ethical to be on a platform that seems to be responsible for so much that seems terrible? Or then we ask the question, well, can I be on there in a way that somehow brings some good or that is um, resisting? I think that that's a huge question. How, how, like whether or not to be on there, but that almost feels, um, how can you not be on there kind of, yeah, it's so, it's so entangled. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I dropped out of Facebook for a while and then found I was missing my family and friends in the UK so much that I joined again. 
but I've decided not to really post much about my life on there. I'm just sort of using Messenger to stay in touch with people. But I had to rejoin Facebook to do that, and it it grated. Yeah. <laughs> but when there's a critical mass on one platform, it's quite hard to walk away from it. Yep, and that's where I think it's sort of always the um, the individual examples or the nuanced personal examples I can come up with where I think, oh, being on Facebook allows some people to be part of meeting ground um, or to be part of the communications in a regular accessible way. That seems like an obvious good, um, but is is every one of us individuals who has our reasons being on there contributing to the mass algorithmic problems. Yeah. Mm. So another, another kind of question would be who, you know, who, who can use Facebook easily, you know, so just from an accessibility point of view, you know, how easy is it to use Facebook if you're blind or if you're, 89 years old uh, or whatever, you know, so there's one, if, if, if a certain population are excluded from the platform, we might say that's, that's got an ethical dimension to it. Um, yeah. I also think the, um, a bit like cigarettes having to change, you know, how they advertise because of the addictive, um, nature of them. That's probably the big thing that I think in terms of spirituality is th this platform is inherently distracting and addictive. It's built to be addictive and distracting. Yeah. And to me, spirituality at its best is about helping me to become present and centered and grounded in the world. So they're sort of at loggerheads with each other. But just that, you know, the fact that the platform is going to play on my evolutionary distractibility um, is, is a huge one for me. Right. Right. I mean, just the sheer amount of time it takes from some people's lives, you might say, well, that's got that's got ethical and spiritual consequences because all you're doing is trying to keep up with all your likes and and, and, and replying to people and stuff. And it becomes almost performative. And people start, you know, worrying if you don't like something they put up, or people worry if they don't get enough likes when they put something up. Mm. And it starts to breed a kind of dysfunctional uh, dependency on this affirmation. Mm. You know, now, yeah, it's perfectly human. To want to be affirmed but facebook has boiled it down to this very sort of constraining concept of what it means to have a relationship with someone and maintain that relationship okay so there's a whole bunch of questions we could ask you know in in my world we might ask what kind of material obviously you know just is it offensive is it spiritual is it uplifting what's the accessibility for it that's got ethical implications if we just excluded certain populations from using it. How does it communicate, impact how we communicate? You know, um, who's got the data? And what are they going to do with it? 
are the assurances of privacy real? Um, well, actually, in Facebook, there aren't many assurances of privacy. In WhatsApp, there are. Um, but that's all still owned by Meta. Um, hmm. Are online relationships real? You know, for some people, they are. But, you know, if, you're, if you've got a friendship with someone who's really just an online friendship, you know, how real is that? Um, and, and a very important one is around our identity as well, which we sort of touched on. Um, do I think of myself in a dysfunctional way now because of my digital persona and how that's going? And we know absolutely for sure that Instagram has distorting impacts on young women. There's loads of evidence about that now. And we also know that Facebook's perfectly aware of that, but they're not really doing much about it hmm. um, because it's all about presentation. And now we've got virtual reality, hooray. Um, so all the same questions apply, but when you can immerse yourself and you know, at the moment it's still a bit clunky, but eventually you won't have to wear a huge mask. It's gonna be such high definition that you won't actually notice the difference after a while. Um, and we are creating worlds now, completely immersive worlds. And the whole concept of the metaverse, et cetera, is, is starting to be coded into reality. And I can't help worrying about the sort of the sense that we'll have, we can create worlds now which people can completely lose themselves in even more than they already do with gaming, say. Um, and it will be an escape from messy reality. Um, and we're gonna have some quite interesting debates about what is real in the future. Um, people are certainly gonna be spending real money on completely digital artifacts. Mm -hmm. On that note, I read the other day that there's there's a bunch of virtual worlds now and blocks of land, they're called like Earth 2 or something like that. But there's blocks of land that are selling for more than a real block of land costs. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so that you can build a digital house or fortress or whatever on it. Or is, they don't actually know what they're going to do with it. They just think it's going to be worth something in the future. Yeah, which is a completely artificial creation of need, right? Because... There's no need to limit the amount of land in, in no. cyberspace. Someone's decided they're going to create an area. They're going to limit the land. It's going to be such a high value place. You're going to want to come and own a, a square of it or whatever. But yeah, yep. we're, we're creating completely artificial need and value. So yeah, in that sense, we are sort of recreating our physical world, but it will be in cyberspace because that's where people are going to find so much identity and meaning. And if you find identity, meaning, and purpose in a virtual world, it's going to feel as important as your identity, meaning, and purpose in the physical world, but possibly uh, more meaningful. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the ethics and, and, and possibly spirituality is going to come from. I mean, should the church be in, in the metaverse? We had all these debates about whether the church should be on the internet to begin with, right? So one answer is, well, of course it will be, you know. Um, but we have to be, um, and um, there are already, you know, some very interesting people talking about why this is not the same as reality, physical reality. And the fact that we're embodied and that we believe in a God who became human flesh for a very important reason 
you know, we might say, well, anything that does away with the body is going to be that that's missing something very important. Equally, we might say, well, if God had became flesh in 2022, then God would have come into the metaverse as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, God so. became pixels. And, and yes, <laughs> yes, the word became pixel. Mm. So there's so much more we could talk about. Um, what we are finding, though, is that when we scale this stuff up, it starts to take on certain properties that I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg had no idea he was creating when he thought, oh, I'm going to create this cool site based on a college photo book to help people stay in touch with their mates. Right. And uh, we have this very interesting movie, The Social Dilemma, if you haven't seen it. Well worth a watch, actually, with the family. You might want to take a look at it if you haven't seen it. Have you seen it, Dan? No, I haven't watched it yet. I keep meaning to, but I haven't got okay, around to yeah. it. Okay, yeah. Pretty interesting, depending on how old your kids are, to watch with them. We know that there's deep concern about the effects on democracy of social media now because it has these unanticipated effects of huge scale algorithms which will feed you stuff that's going to keep you on site. It turns out that what we like to respond to most is emotional stuff, stuff that confirms our own biases, what's been called limbic hijack. You know, it sort of hijacks the lowest part of our brain that responds to sensational stuff, sexy stuff, violent stuff, tribal stuff. It appeals to our lower natures. That's what, that's what gets the clicks. It's, you know, it's the clickbait thing, right? But when you, when you have that at scale, Quite a lot of people are now really worried that it's it's actually unraveling democracy because people can't even talk to each other anymore. They literally inhabit different realities. They just don't get the same news. They think about facts differently, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, fantastic site that I've spent some time on recently: Systems, Souls, and Society, the Perspectiva site, where people are thinking deeply about this. Also, the Consilience Project site for people to follow up on. Again, people talking about whether the civili human civilization is, is, is entering its sort of final phase now, because basically we've created a world with technology that we can't control any longer. Really interesting stuff going on there. Hmm. So that's it. We've got a few minutes to sort of scratch our heads and think about, well, what does this mean? Um, but uh, I hope that's a, a few provocations Mm. that sort of show how how people are thinking about you know peeling back it's, it's looking behind the screen peeling back the screen and looking at all the infrastructure that actually delivers this thing to our eyes and the fact that it's completely infused with value judgments and anything that's infused with value judgments even if they're invisible or hard to excavate is going to be ethical and arguably it's going to be spiritual as well, because you can't talk about spirituality without talking about sense of identity, sense of relationship, um, how you spend your time, whether you think you're making wise decisions based on information and so forth. That's all bound up with our, with our spirituality and what we think it means to be, you know, people of God. Happy to hear any thoughts you have. 
Thanks, Simon. Lots of lots of really good stuff. It, a lot of it makes me think about just the value of self-awareness. Um, self-awareness is such a huge... Uh, there's a, a quote I love from Dr. Henry Cloud, his psychologist, says reality is always your friend. And to actually look at the negative realities of our life is the starting place of being able to do something about it. And I think the same deal, to, to look at the reality of um, all of the easily hidden aspects of technology is a really good starting place just to kind of have that awareness that might inform our decision-making. Yeah. Mm. One thing that I'm reading at the moment is about the, the difference between experiencing the world directly, you know, physically, and experiencing the world when it's been re-presented. This is what representation, you know, this is all representation. It's models of the world digitally rendered. And there's a, there's a fundamental difference between dealing with reality, dealing with real people face-to-face, -face, dealing with real war, dealing with real love, dealing with real commitment and sacrifice, and dealing with it in a represented world, which is, which is either claiming to show us the real world through a transparent lens, which of course we now understand it's not, or it's actually intentionally manufacturing a completely artificial world like gaming or the metaverse um, to go and play in. And there's nothing wrong with playing, you know, that's playing is important for humans. So we, you know, it might be that a healthy attitude to some of this new technology is that it allows us to play in completely new ways. But of course that can go well off the rails as well. Mm. But a represented reality is very different to a created, you know, we have evolved as humans for millions of years to engage with real face-to-face -face people, right? And we can barely cope with the amount of information that's coming at us all the time now. Our little brains aren't handling that well. We're feeling paralyzed by all the decisions that need making. And they're so complex and there's so much information and there's so many different views. Our brains as a species are not coping well. Um, and that's, that's fundamentally spiritual, I think, because we're paralyzed and, and we're doom scrolling. You know, we talked about that before. We started chatting you know the doom scrolling that goes on now when you when you wake up in the morning and look at the news mm. it's like it's it's that we never used to do that <laughs> but uh, the news of course is a filter already on the world somebody's decided what the news is the news is mm. never neutral yeah i do think you know part part of this makes me think about um there's there's the stuff we can do directly with how we use our technology. You know, when I'm on Facebook, I'm going to try and um, be conscious of what kind of engagement I have and what I put out there and all of that. But it makes me think that what we do um, offline is such an important part of this. You know, how we start the day, um, having the intentionality to start the day and go and look at a sunrise or to um, sit without a screen for an hour or, um, all of those sort of decisions for me, like a big part of my health is to have a sort of tech Sabbath, um, you know, every week and switch it off for 24 hours. But 
sort of makes me think that a lot of the old school spiritual disciplines, silence or solitude or um, things like that are actually an incredibly important they were they were they had value before but maybe they have even more value in a world where there's all of this stuff competing for our attention yeah yeah i mean you know the fact that we now carry these phones around with us all the time means that many young people are growing up and they've never been alone in the sense of completely disconnected and when they are disconnected because their batteries failed or they forgot their phone or their phone's you know smashed or or been stolen it instills extraordinary anxiety right they just the idea of being out in the wilds and completely disconnected and no one knowing where you are is is an existential threat right they are literally they literally go through um you know uh, withdrawal symptoms when they're deprived of their phones there have been studies of this now mm. you know now you could say oh technology is neutral but not when everyone has it and you're always on that has changed something in our minds you know we have become addicted to them hmm. yeah what's uh, what's it all sparking for you dan any thoughts um oh just how overwhelming it can be really um trying to decipher from what comes through your feed or what you see on the news or whatever, what's actually real and what's not. I mean, something that's pretty easy to see what elements are real and others it's really hard to determine what's actually the truth. Um, and, yeah, having it curated for you makes it even harder to actually know. Like the confirmation bias online is crazy. Everyone gets fed what they want to see basically so, uh, in a lot of situations and, yeah, I'm um, just uh, kind of wondering what I can do to uh, mitigate that a bit um, other than just sticking my head in the sand and uh, ignoring all news sources <laughs> so that I'm not misinformed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, raising kids in this era is, is an extraordinary, uh, you know, privilege but challenge as well. How are you, how you, how you going to raise savvy kids? I mean, you either say you're not going online or we have to raise them so that they are, they're literate, they're critical. Mm. They're, they're aware that what they're seeing is, is highly filtered and treated. Mm. It's cooked. It's cooked. Um, yeah. I think that'd be, um, that'd be a possible session in the future just around the, the parenting so that's its own huge topic, isn't it? And, and we've talked a bit about that, Simon, but that that applies beyond the tech stuff. But I, I think there's a bunch of us that probably would be, it'd be helpful to facilitate some thinking around parenting, like passing on digital literacy and, and growing the awareness of this stuff early. Yeah. Yeah. Something to loop back to. Yep, absolutely. Hmm. All right. Thanks so much, Simon. That, that was really good. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. Um, well, this is what I do. So I'm happy to chat until you're completely bored about this. Uh, but um, 
yeah what's uh what's our assignment what kind of um essay do we have to bang together <laughs> after this <laughs> no homework but uh if it starts sparking more thoughts then you know let's keep chatting i mean um, will you and i have exchanged some messages around some of the stuff that's on the consilience project and the perspectiva website there's there's a lot of people worrying about where our civilization is going and the fact that the technology is running out running out of our control and uh, developing developing a, a hopeful christian response to that it seems more important than ever hmm. um, the good thing is that there are some pretty bright minds working on this stuff hmm. uh, and people are waking up to the fact that the technology is is, is not is not having the, the desired effects. Yeah, what was that podcast, Will? That podcast that talks about tech and the ethics around tech? Uh, the Center for uh, Humane Technology. Uh, it's called Your Undivided Attention. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've been posting some good stuff lately. I feel like they've... Um, They've, they've maybe um, hit hit a bit of a refresh point. I, I felt like there was a bunch of episodes I listened to after watching The Social Dilemma that were um, fantastic, but it got a bit... Um, I tapped out because it was a bit samey, and I feel like yeah. they've started to... Well, me and Simon have been talking about this, but they're expanding the conversation. It's sort of this language around the meta-crisis and some of the bigger um, things going on, but, yeah... I think they've got some good stuff they're putting out at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, Simon, grateful to have you as our, our resident um, thinker in this area and uh, right. to share your expertise with us is, is really generous and wonderful. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, yep. Looking forward to others where, you know, we get other, other folks in who can share a bit from their their corner of the universe mm, good stuff well i'll see you at yours on sunday yeah hope so if we haven't been washed away yes <laughs> do let us know if you if it's looking that way okay brilliant all right I'll see you then see you guys see you later thanks cheers <laughs>